Welcome to the American Negotiation Institute's podcast, where we will teach you the skills you need to get more out of life. And now your host, Kwame Christian. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Negotiate Anything. I'm Kwame Christian. I'm a business lawyer by trade, but my passion lies in teaching you the keys of persuasion and conflict resolution. My goal is to empower you to engage in these conversations confidently and effectively by not only sharing what works, but by also uncovering why these techniques work through revealing the psychological principles that lie behind persuasion. Our guest today is James Rorys. James is an author, investor, trainer, and coach who is passionate about empowering and transforming modern sales and customer-facing teams. I know you're going to get a lot out of this one, so without further ado, let's jump into the interview. James, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. So how about you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? So uh, James Rorys, I like to think of myself as a coach. I'm also the CEO and founder of Florist Group. Florist Group is a company that has tools that help empower salespeople and transform sales forces. We tend to work with any company from a startup to a high-growth mid-market company. And the key for us is to help organizations think about how they can more systematically and predictably drive growth in their organization. Typically, sales is one of the last areas of expertise that small and mid-market companies develop. It's after generally building the best product in the world, the best service delivery team, best infrastructure, operations, et cetera. And then we generally help them elevate sales to the point where it can perform at the same level of the rest of the organization. And when we can do that, we can generally help them or often help them accelerate growth and double the size of their firm in the next three to five years. And that's really the ultimate goal with our clients. And so how did you get into that? It took a long time. <laughs> I mean, I've been doing this for about 25, more than 25 years. I was born into a fourth generation of a family of entrepreneurs, as we discussed. And um, when I decided to, to not get into the family business, I went off to grad school and left grad school, as I mentioned. I look back and think of this. I didn't think of it during the time, but I was essentially unemployable because I had the arrogance of being an entrepreneur and the arrogance of the MBA at a young age. So I just was really only able to start my own company. But after about seven years in that company, I was able to co-found a couple of technology companies in the early 90s. One was sold in the late 90s, one went public in 97. And then I was able to fully embrace the internet bubble at the end of the second half of the 90s and early 2000s. And so I was really involved very early on in helping venture-backed startups think about how to sell more effectively Typically, the challenge that we had at that stage of growth at that time was you're meeting people and trying to sell them a product or a capability they've never heard of to solve a problem they didn't know they had. And you're doing it for a company with no brand, no customers to speak of, et cetera. So it's, it's the toughest sales challenge you can face. Wow. That's interesting. And one of the things that I like the most about your journey to this point is that in 2004, you had a bit of a revelation. Can you tell us about that yeah. too? One of the lowest points in my career came after the highest point in my career. I had joined a uh, high-tech startup. Within less than a year, I was the top rep worldwide. I was 330% of my number. My boss greeted me on January 1 with hero to zero. James, you've gone from hero to zero, and that was it. And so, wow. so everything that I had worked toward and, and sought to achieve the previous year went to zero. 
I was back in his eyes to being worthless. And so many of us as human beings attach our worth to our work. And that's where I was at that moment. I immediately hated him and I hated my job and <laughs> did not like where I was. That was a revelation. And uh, basically, I got to the point where I could not sustain the level of growth that I had been able to achieve. And I couldn't do it for other people. I found myself online searching for a life coach, hired one, and within about six months became functional and uh, recognized that uh, every CEO and sales leader that I had ever met, you know, those 15 years needed this kind of awareness. <laughs> and so I uh, very quickly decided that my next career would be helping CEOs and sales leaders think about how to drive growth, but from a hu more humanistic collaborative perspective. I like to think of it from a servant leader perspective versus the way I had learned to do it. So tell us a little bit more about the humanistic and collaborative perspective that you bring now to these CEOs. Every small business that I work with wants growth for whatever reason. You know, there are wonderful reasons. I had a client that needed to drive growth in the business so that the, so he could have other folks run the business so he could step back and take care of his wife who had cancer. Some people want growth simply to line their pockets and compete with their friends and look, say, look, I've been in business for 10 years and I have a $100 million company and all this money in the bank. There are those guys out there as well. But the idea is everybody wants growth. And the, and the question is, can you achieve growth in a functional way, in a collaborative, humanistic way, where unlike the life I led, where when you're working with venture capitalists who want you to grow at 100% per year or more, and are always evaluating you based on the numbers, it can be a dehumanizing environment. So how do you turn that around? And how do you still get the most out of people? So when you think about it from that perspective, you start with the leadership and you can really, you can get there very quickly by simply adopting the servant leader mentality. In our world, when we're talking about growth and working with people in terms of persuading them to work with you, you can easily live or walk the path of a servant leader by focusing on their goals, and that's what you serve. You end up serving your client's goals, but you lead them down your path. So the idea as a salesperson is that, or as a CEO of a company, you understand the path to success. You're simply looking for people who are willing to pay you to walk that path. And the way you do that is you identify folks that have a goal that they're looking to achieve, that you know your path is suited to deliver. So what we're doing is when we're working with salespeople, we're helping them think about becoming expert in their path, thinking about them changing their perspective, their self-view from being a salesperson in this zero-sum game, either I win or I lose, to helping them think of themselves as a leader. My job is now to take control of this conversation and help you walk through the buying cycle, that decision cycle, because I know I can get you there. And instead of me pitching you on my product or service, I'm going to spend most of my time understanding your goals, the impact of success or failure, the impact of doing nothing, what's been blocking you from getting there, and then helping you understand my solution in the context of those three questions, the answers to those three questions. And by doing so, I become less focused on me as a salesperson and much more focused on my client. They have a unique experience because very few other salespeople operate this way. You don't sound like a salesperson. And instead of you selling, it's more like them buying. You're cultivating the buying cycle versus really becoming very focused on the sales cycle. I like to say that, and this is not something I made up, but it's something that's really true. Most of us, most of you listening, you enjoy 
buying, but you hate being sold. And that's really what we're talking about. We're really making the buying process more customer-centric. We're focused on what that universal buying cycle looks like. We're actually walking the buyer down the path to help them make a decision as a servant leader versus as an somebody who wants to influence them or overtly persuade them. I really like this. I'm sure you're not surprised about, <laughs> about that. But um, it reminds me of that, um, that law where they say every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And when you come at somebody trying to sell them or persuade them or convince them of something, you're going to get resistance naturally because they can see how our interests might be opposed. And when they get that sense, they're going to resist. And now you've made your job more difficult by taking that hardline approach. But now by aligning yourself on the same side of the table with this collaborative approach, you lower their defenses and you're working together to see if it makes sense to work together. That's a great point. There are a lot of analogies in the coaching world that point to this. But as you were talking, I was thinking of if you're a greedy salesperson driven by greed, the people who are going to buy from you are people who are driven by greed. It could be a client that's greedy for attention, a client that's greedy for recognition, a client that's greedy for an ROI, or a client that's greedy for a big discount. But the point is, if you walk into a situation as a, from a greedy perspective, a self-centered perspective, you're going to meet people and relate to people in the same way, who are like you. And when you ask clients, who are your best customers? It's not those customers. It's not the customers who always want something from you and are, are not thinking about how together you can create something amazing. So what's nice about this approach is, as a servant leader, if somebody has a goal that I can deliver and they have an impact that creates enough value, now I can decide whether or not it makes sense for me to help them or whether it makes sense for me to refer them to someone else. Then I can focus on what's missing. I can map what's missing to the capabilities that I bring to the table and create, a, create not just a sale, a win, but a long-term relationship. And this is really effective today in SaaS or software-as-a-service type environments where we do a lot of work because those organizations really rely on having long-term relationships with their clients. That's where the money is. And, and today, I think most organizations are recognizing that. This approach is very synchronous with all of the customer-centric marketing and service initiatives that are out there today. Right. This makes a lot of sense. And your perspective as of approaching this conversation as a leader, I think that's a, a paradigm shift for me too, because I know that when people are higher level negotiators, the impetus is upon them to drive the conversation because you know you have the skills to lead us in a place where this conversation can actually be productive. I never thought about it as actually being a leader. And I think changing that perspective makes you see yourself as somebody that has the responsibility of directing the conversation in a, in a positive way. Before we finish up this episode, I have a few questions for you. Does your job do professional development training? Are you looking for a workshop for your next conference? Does your profession require effective communication or dispute resolution? If so, a negotiation training seminar might be what you need. I've had the opportunity to do these trainings around the country, and I'd love to swing by your neck of the woods. Our customized negotiation seminars are as fun as they are informative. You'll not only discover the keys to negotiation and persuasion, you'll also have the opportunity to practice these skills in a safe environment with a negotiation simulation. And at the end of the seminar, you'll be able to communicate confidently, resolve disputes effectively, and get what you want out of your next negotiation. And as an added bonus, if you let us know far enough in advance, we can get these trainings certified for continuing education credits. 
feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email to learn more. That's a great, great, great point. Many salespeople struggle with being on their heels. Many salespeople walk into a situation in a defensive mode because they feel like when they call someone, they're bothering them. Well, you wouldn't be bothering them if you had something valuable to say or a valuable question to ask. So why not worry less about whether you're bothering somebody and focus more on how are you going to deliver value? And can you ask a question that makes me think? And that requires a leadership mentality. This is not about us showing up and having the client walk us through their buying cycle. It's about us showing up and us leading the client or walking the client through their buying cycle. What's interesting is many of us in the space have heard this statistic, but because of the internet and because it's so easy for buyers to research their products and services before they buy them, salespeople are finding that if they allow their customer, if they wait for their customers to contact them, they're generally contacting us after about two-thirds of their buying cycle and buying decision is complete, which means we have a much lower chance of being successful. And that typically is because most buyers today believe that salespeople, in fact, the stat from a well-respected research organization is about 61% of buyers expect salespeople to add no value other than just product data, which is really stuff you can get off the internet. Many buyers don't think salespeople add any value. So in that environment, you must be a leader. You must, when you meet a buyer, be willing to challenge them and provoke them to be thinking about what they're doing in a different way. And the easy way to think about that, easy way to justify that as a salesperson is simply to recognize that most buyers of most things do it very infrequently. Even if we buy a car once every three years through a lease, it's still infrequent. It's I'm the buyer is involved in much fewer transactions than the salesperson is. As an expert on the buying process and on delivering value to my clients, I can walk into a situation and understand where my buyer is and understand all the steps that they've skipped and then provoke them to be thinking about the risk in, in skipping those steps. And instead of working with them on just presenting my solution, I can work with them on rediscovering their goals. So have you thought about all the goals that are important to you? And if they say, yes, here are our goals, I might, because of my experience, be able to say, well, that's interesting. I have a number of clients who are, who are thinking that way, but they're also thinking about this, this, and this, and I can begin broadening the conversation. As you can imagine, even in a negotiation, if you can expand the goals or change the goals of, your, of the person you're, you're communicating with, you change the formula for success. And if I can create larger goals, the impact of those goals then all of a sudden becomes larger. And then, of course, if the impact is larger, the barriers that might be standing in their way, there might be more barriers now standing in their way, which means my solution now has that much more value. And I can actually now create, in a sales environment, our job is to create differentiation. So if I expand the goals, expand the impact of those goals, and then expand the barriers or the, the recognition of the barriers standing in their way, I can actually differentiate my solution beyond what my competitors may have been able to do because they just followed the process or leveraged the information the buyer brought to the table. And there was something really deep you said in there, and I don't want people to miss this, because a lot of times we assume that people know what they want, and that is rarely the case. <laughs> the deeper you go into psychology, the weirder you'll find that we are. <laughs> we really don't know. So like you said, since you are the leader in this situation, you have more experience, you have more skills in this, you can recognize that they might not have an understanding of their goals. Like you said, you don't go in and say, 
hey, your goals are messed up. <laughs> you, you ask those questions and allow them to come to that conclusion themselves. When we're preparing for negotiations or sales, we have to understand what our interests are. Where do we want to go and why do we want it? But we can't assume that they know where they want to go or why they want, want to go there either. So one of the biggest parts that we need to do is help them uncover that before we even start making substantive asks. Exactly. How good you are at that really depends on the mindset you bring to the conversation. Do you have the mindset of a leader or do you have the mindset of a follower? Are you there to beg for business or are you there to really uncover whether or not there's a need for your services? And then if there is, provide the best possible solution. There's you know a lot of sales folks walk into a situation with a scarcity mentality and they'll take anything they can get. Many other salespeople, the ones that we work with, walk in with an abundant mentality, meaning I know I'm going to hit my number this year. I know my goals are achievable. I'm just going to show up and execute the same way every time. And I will speak to and meet enough people and create enough opportunity for myself. That way I'm not on my heels. I don't have that scarcity mentality and I can't operate really as that true servant leader and actually function in the, always have in mind the best interest of my client as well as myself simultaneously. That's really the thing that came to me after I hired my life coach back in 05. That's, that's the realization I came to. Yeah. And I tell you, when it comes to that mentality, a lot of times people say, how do I look more confident, act more confident? How do I act more assertively? And I say, if that's where you're starting, there, there's a problem here because this isn't acting. You need to actually embody that. So if you have a scarcity mentality and you're trying to be confident, people can see the misalignment between your body language and what you're saying. And they can sense it. They don't know exactly what it is, but they know they don't like it. <laughs> yeah. So you have to make sure that your mentality going in is in the right place. So what can we do? Let's say if we maybe we're early on our, in our career or maybe we hit a dry spell and we are kind of desperate. <laughs> How do we still cultivate that mentality of abundance before we go into these meetings? Yeah, that's critical. I have two comments on that. The first thing is when we when we develop people in a formal training model, we focus on three things. And it may be helpful for folks to think of their development in this way. We think of mindset, skill set, tool set. So you can hand somebody a tool. If they don't have the skills to use it, the tool be, won't be worth much. You can teach someone a skill. If they don't have the mindset, they're not going to execute that skill. So you have to start with the, the belief system or the, or the mindset. So when you're thinking about yourself, think about where your head's at, and then think about the skills, and then think about the tools. Investing money, time, and effort in skills and tools without the proper belief system or the proper mindset is a mistake. We also look at that when we hire folks, and we can talk about that on a separate podcast <laughs> possibly, but hiring somebody with the wrong mindset is a recipe for failure as well for the same reasons. The mindset that you're talking about is really a mindset of fear. Now, I'm not diagnosing every person listening today. We all have our own stories and our own truths. But at a very high level, the answer is the things that prevent us from being curious, the things that prevent us from being honest with ourselves, from being introspective, and the things that prevent us from changing really all boil down to a level of fear that we have, whether it's a fear of success or a fear of failure or just a fear of the unknown. And without any kind of religious implication, the idea here is that you have to you have to shift fear to faith. And I don't mean a religious faith. What I mean is 
most of us are fearful because of the things that we don't know. Well, we're only fearful of that because we think the things that we don't know and understand can hurt us. But what if you just believed that it, that, that wasn't going to happen? What if you just believed that you'd be fine no matter what? Now, of course, you have to take calculated risks in your life. As long as the calculated risk, you've considered the options, then does fear really have a place in that decision? And so if you can, if you can find a way to translate fear into faith, have that level of confidence that no matter what happens, you're going to be fine, that tends to be, in a general scale, what liberates most people and allows them to think differently. And as we like to say, step out of complacency and step into curiosity. There are really only two paths you can be walking in your life and from decision to decision. It's either a complacent one where you don't want to change or a curious one where you welcome change. Right. And the power of curiosity, I think, is understated today, because when you think back in the day in our in our primitive times, it was curiosity that kept us alive. We're looking for new places to as when we're nomads, we're looking for new places so we could survive. As we're discovering new things, we it's our curiosity that takes us there. And now that I feel it's almost like we know too much. And so we don't feel the need to be curious anymore. But one of the things that I, I found helpful as I'm developing my confidence with this skill, is that I realize that my curiosity can save me in these in these difficult conversations. So when I see the unknown, now that I have a better understanding of how this thing works and the skills that I have, I can say, oh, there's something I don't know, but I could figure it out. <laughs> and that that alleviates a little bit of my fear. But just embracing that curiosity and, and seeing, seeing unknown and seeing it as a, an opportunity, not something to run away from, is an interesting way to change your mindset in that situation sometimes. You're dead on. I think it's something I hadn't thought of before, your observation. But we had to change. We had to be curious because there was so much we didn't control. And I think now in this industrial age, we can survive quite well by being complacent. Mm -hmm. You know, we can eat Fritos every day. We can drink Coke. We can, there's enough calories out there that we can buy that's cheap enough that, for example, that are provided to us that will just allow us to be complacent and not if we want to seek challenges and, and higher levels of experience. So that's very possible. And we do that actually today in our largest organizations. Many of our largest organizations make it possible for employees to operate the same way, to just get by. My kids are probably sick of hearing me talk about this, but there's a difference between folks that do just the minimum to get by versus folks that challenge themselves and always look for ways to get better or perform at their best. And today, more than any other time in history, I think it's that's more and more possible for us to, to choose one path or the other and be fine. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. That's interesting. Well, good stuff. Well, before we have you go, wanted to get your perspective on what is something that our audience could do today or within the next week to be more persuasive? I mean, I hate to repeat myself, but the idea of servant leadership is really interesting. There's a book out there by James Hunter called The Servant. Great book. It's really written for managers, and it describes servant leadership in a very succinct way. It's about a 100-page book. One of the things that many of my clients who read that book tell me is that what Hunter helps them do is really define the difference between a want and a need in the context of working with employees. We shift that in the context of being persuasive from a sales perspective. So what an employer will do with an employee, when an employee says, I want 
more days off. The employer, from a, as a servant leader perspective, from a, from a servant leader's perspective, will focus on, well, what does the employee really need to be successful? Because sometimes employees want things that really don't align with success. So that's the responsibility of the servant leader in that context. From a sales perspective, we really care about what the other person wants. In negotiation, you really care about what that person is emotionally attached to. It's not about need, rational need. It's about the emotional attachment to what they want. So in our approach to sales, we like to think about wants and needs in that way. So what? So I'll give you a formula to think about this. And you can. The analogy is wins, wants, impacts, needs, and solutions. So based. So back to the example we talked about earlier. When you think about what someone's goals are, those are really their wants. Find out what they want first. Then, before going on to your solution for them, help them think about the impact of success, failure, or doing nothing. Those two components are going to create an emotional impetus in them and really turn you, actually, into their emotional favorite because you'll be sitting there discussing with them the most important things that they have to talk about, their highest priorities. What do you want? What's the impact of success? If that takes me a half hour, an hour, it's fine. I have now invested in becoming that person's emotional favorite. Then you can focus on the rational conversations. Okay, what's missing? And then what types of solutions can fill those gaps? What's missing? That's the needs. What solutions fill the gaps? That's solutions. So that's how we get to wins. And so if you can think about having conversations that way, you'll find that they work whether you're negotiating or selling to a a very complex sale in a Fortune 50 company, or whether you're talking to your child about wearing their helmet when they're riding their bike. Right. Oh, this is so good. And one of the my favorite points about that is the patience that it takes in order to do that effectively. Like you said, it could take half hour to an hour. And that makes me think that this might be multiple conversations. This might be multiple days, weeks. But if you take the time and do it the right way, like you said, you'll be in their emotional favor. And most other people, they are just all about, they're not about romance. They're just about getting into it. <laughs> exactly right. And when most salespeople complain about how do I get this person to call me back? Well, the reason they're not calling you back is because you're boring. Right. All you did was talk about your solution, and they can find that solution from any one of 100 vendors. Talk to them about something that they're emotionally attached to. Become the emotional favorite, and they'll look forward to talking to you. Oh, this is so good. This makes me really excited for our sparring session coming up. But before we get into it, uh, let the listeners know how they can uh, get in touch with you. Well, the best way to reach me is my email, james at florisgroup.com. That's F-L-O-R-I-S-S group.com. We have lots of information on the website and ways to contact us and we'd be happy to chat with you for any reason. We're here to help. Perfect. Thank you. Appreciate it. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you're finding this information helpful, please remember to leave a review and subscribe. Our goal is to teach this to as many people as possible. And every time you leave a review, it makes it easier for people to find us in the search engines. With your support and listenership, we've grown to the point where we are now the number one ranked negotiation podcast, and we have listeners in 140 different countries. We appreciate your continued support, and please continue to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Remember, everybody who connects with me gets a personal message from me eventually. It takes time because uh, more and more people have been reaching out, but I want to hear from you, and we actually get to chat. So continue to reach out. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you in the next one.